0: Hey, everyone. Happy New Year. It's Amber Love, and you are listening to the Vodka O'Clock podcast. Don't forget that you can buy my first two mystery novels, Cardiac Arrest and Full Body Manslaughter. They're part of the Farrow Weathers Mystery Series. And you can also support the show and my work at patreon.com slash amberunmask. So joining me today for the first time, one of my dearest friends, we often commiserate about living creative lives and finding balance. So the author of All Bridges Burning and with short stories in Protectors 2 and Feeding Kate, today here on the show is Neliza Drew. Welcome. Hi. Hi. She also has a ton of cats, so we may end up just talking about cats for a
1: while. They are very Um, cute
0: cats. (laughs) They are. You you have adorable cats, and you just keep getting more.
1: Uh, they find me.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe it's a Florida thing because they're just they're. It's okay to, for them to be out and around. Um, Unless gators get them, I don't know what it's like there.
1: Well, actually, I think a lot of our cats showed up during the um, the housing crisis. The um, when a lot of the neighborhood went into foreclosure, I think yeah. um, several people abandoned their animals and because uh, we had at least two who showed up during that time like span that didn't well no three that didn't that seemed to have like been living somewhere and someone had been kind of sort of caring for them in some fashion but then they just like didn't have a place to go and ended up at our in our yard see that seems
0: like it should be a plot to a pixar movie uh, you know, like there, because there's there's that movie about those, you know, the guys taking advantage of of all the housing problems. Um, I can't remember who was in it. It might have been like a Steve Carell movie or something, but it was like really serious and and awful. Um, and I so the last animated thing I think I watched um, was Secret Life of Pets, and it had these really dark, sad parts. You know, like Toy Story. And so now you're talking about these poor homeless pets and it seems like, you know, as you know, you've had the storms and hurricanes and stuff and you know, there's also housing problems.
1: Yes. So we also do have the little storm refugee who moved in because he didn't have a place to go during, uh, when everyone was preparing for hurricane Matthew that thankfully didn't hit here. Um, but, uh, we, we don't actually have like a gator problem per se in this particular area because we don't have any lakes. We have a river. Um, that's nearby, but um, out west, the the lakes tend to attract alligators because, uh, well, first of all, they're out. The neighborhoods are in the Everglades, former Everglades, and uh, the lakes aren't so much lakes as they are borrow pits where they've borrowed land from here to build houses on because the um, the land is kind of low and and soggy. Um, and uh, those tend to have alligators in. Them. And yeah. Oh, because I yeah,
0: I, I, it's one of those things where you always see pictures on the internet of uh, you know like gators crossing golf courses and stuff.
1: A lot of those are are further west from here. I, not all of them. I mean, we they've, they've had alligators that are further east too. But for like, them, watch the water hazards because of gators. But for the most part, those are are further west of, the, of here. So. Like not too far west, you could get there yeah. in like a few minutes, but
0: <laughs> well, yeah our our critters are both rescues. They were outside homeless cats. Um, one was one was actually you know like taken off the street homeless, but Gus was adopted from a pound, so I don't know how long he was on the streets, I think about six months. Poor Gus poor Gus, and then he was in a cage. So now he's just a lunatic running around with his cousin. He's happy. Happy boy. They're sleeping. They wore themselves out.
1: And already we've turned it into a podcast about cats.
0: It is. It's cat show, man. <laughs> Crazy cat ladies who write crime fiction. News 11. <laughs> so we're going to th- talk about crime fiction, though, because there is plenty of crime fiction that has cats. One of my favorite authors, Lillian Jackson Braun, of course. Um, but uh there there are no cats that I recall in All the Bridges Burning. It's really dark and gritty. Um it's uh yeah, it's dark. We're gonna talk about how damaged and, and uh I don't know, flawed Davis Groves is as a, you know, leading female protagonist. She's got a mess of a family. And um she's sort of unkillable like John McClain and Die Hard. So where's uh you know where does davis come from
1: um well funnily enough davis at one point in a, an earlier much earlier draft had a cat and a dog um but uh the the more i figured out about her character the less likely she seemed to have that kind of an attachment to anything outside of her family um and at the time, at the start of that particular story, that particular book, um, her t- attachment to her family is kind of tenuous. So um, the, the cat and the dog had to go, but luckily they were fictitious, so I didn't like have to kill them off or like drop them off at a pound. They just kind of disappeared into wherever fictional ideas go when they, you know, don't work out. Um, yeah, save them for later. <laughs> so. I don't ever see Davis actually like getting a dog or a cat. Like she's. Um but maybe maybe Nick maybe Nick needs a dog and a cat
0: that could be that could Nick, be Nick Nick always uh, tries much harder to be normal so I mean it was like a key element of John Wick you know it's like a tremendous amount of violence but there has to be a
1: dog you know well dogs uh, and, and and cats and, and children and all add like a level of vulnerability to a character especially um, and, and I think they're more popular in, um, to add to, sounds wrong, but I guess like male characters who are particularly violent, to give them like a kid or a dog or something to humanize them so they don't seem like just these crazed killing machines.
0: No, that's true. I think that's true. Yeah. Um, so Davis has, uh, what, it was two sisters, right? Yes. And a- an absolute... I don't know ill mother now like in order to understand davis, I think we need to we need to start with her mom here talk about so tell tell people who haven't you know they we're assuming people listening probably haven't read the book yet, but if you have um, no spoilers on Twitter after you hear the show um, what is the deal with davis's mother <laughs>
1: um davis's mother has her own. Uh, baggage from her own um, childhood and her own uh, early years of her marriage and her own just her own personal mental health issues that uh, over the course of her life she's found some um, not bad and then some really bad ways of trying to mitigate them or self-medicate them or deal with them and um, after her husband decides to leave um she is feeling more um unstable and she makes some poor choices and some of those poor choices lead to some other things that cause her to lead make even more poor choices and uh her instability and her kind of floating from one place and thing to another have a a great impact on the way that the, especially the two older daughters, um, are raised and raise themselves, so to, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, And the way that they, in turn, treat and raise the younger sister, Lane. I don't know if that answered the question without, like... (laughs) Being yeah, too spoilery.
0: <laughs> too spoilery. Well, we we are going to talk about um you know violence against women and some sexual assault issues. So if anybody's worried about that, you you know might want to tune out. But um the the girls do go through um all of them for you know all of the people in this book have really you know some physical violence uh, except for you know that the Lawyer guy. Um, but there's, like, like I said, Davis comes across as so unkillable. And she also bears a tremendous amount of guilt for the fact that she's surviving and unkillable. Um,
1: yeah, I think in a lot of ways, like, it's almost like a curse for her.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it. She, you know, like, why did she live instead, you know? Um, and there's a, a lot of drugs and, um, you know, the, everybody seems to have firearms and, and, and stuff and maybe it's Florida. I don't know. Um, <laughs> oh no, you were in the Carolinas when you said this, right? Um, Yeah. D- it was sort of around. Davis uh,
1: starts off in, in Florida um, and uh, she goes to North Carolina, which is where her mother is, has kind of settled um, after like this lifelong road trip sort of a thing that they were on Um And uh, for various reasons, she has a a house that they've paid for that's falling apart around her and uh, in the middle of nowhere. And um, so she's they're in North Carolina. um, But, yeah, they're they're not they're not from the kind of background where um, a lot of like legal parameters surrounding like, you know, a lot of behavior like dictate what they do and don't do.
0: Yeah. It seemed like there was, you know, like addictions were just rampant and they weren't even considered it addictions. It was just, you know, like, Hey, people take this stuff and use this stuff and smoke this stuff. And, you know, and girls at 15 are selling their bodies and, you know, it just seems like, like, Oh, well, that's how you do it. That's how this family has to do it.
1: Well, and I, uh, a lot of that grew out of the, um, almost a decade that I worked at the juvenile detention center, uh, locally. Um, it i mean a lot of it granted this is definitely fictionalized it, there's not really anything in it that's directly pulled from any of the students that I worked with um but it was certainly informed by hearing their stories and l- listening to their nonchalance about a lot of things that you know people from like small towns and suburbs and better areas would be like. You know, oh my God, okay, shocked about, and just whatever is it's what it is. Kind of a an attitude towards a lot of it, Um and and not to say that that's you know healthy per se, but it just it's their coping mechanism or their survival skill, or it's all they know. So, um, when they you know would talk about, well, I got I I really hope that you know the judge will let me go because. I gotta check on my mom because you know she's she's trying to stay clean, but I gotta keep checking her. You know stuff like that. When I mean, you you know, I, I, if you don't grow up in that environment, you don't. That's you're like kind of pushing your jaw back up. <laughs>
0: like you can't believe that this is home.
1: You're you're how, eleven, well, dude. Like it's
0: just not yeah. your concern. And Davis, like you said, it's not that she's based on anyone in particular, or you know, or the really toxic mom and and her issues Um, as you were character building. Why doesn't Davis give up? Like she just keeps, you know, she could have walked away. Obviously that would have been a different story, but, but she, she just does it. Like, you know, no matter what her sisters have done, no matter what, people in the town think of their family well, um, she doesn't give up
1: well at some point she does give up though which is how she ends up in florida she's you know she once she has her GED and she like manages to somehow get herself into um into a college by like just her her grades leading up to her decision to, to get a GED instead of a, a regular diploma and everything have been remarkable Remarkably well for like someone in her situation, and um, she attributes that to Nick, who is uh, mo- very concerned with normalcy and trying to be much better than than they are. And uh, but she she finds herself in uh, in yet another ridiculous situation that's violent and terrible, and she decides that she's just she's had enough she's she thinks that she's doing more harm than good by all of the things that she's tried to to do and she is um just she feels like damaged beyond repair and she just feels like she just needs to run away and hibernate kind of thing and she also has this fear that whatever is is after her whether it's a specific person um that, you know, like she can put her, you know, mind on, or if it's just like fate kind of thing, like whatever it is that she feels she has to just get away from her family. Um, and so she just, and she's also feeling a little bit, um, like like her version of suicidal where she's, um, self destructive Yeah. Like, uh, you know, she sees this, this news report about, um, tourists being killed in Miami. So she decides I'll go there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, clearly no one, you know, gets her in Miami because she ends up back in North Carolina to deal with her family's nonsense. But um, then she has to deal with the guilt of having left uh, while her sister is still, her younger sister is still young in her formative kind of like preteen teen years. And that, you know, she's left her largely to deal with Charlie, her mom, Charlie and uh, her issues on her own and coming to the realization that the only reason that she and nick really kind of survived this is because they kind of worked together and that they've left lane to deal with it on her own and they fucked up yeah so there
0: was i guess what i what i'm wondering is where the nugget of the story came from you know like the was there some kind of prompt like oh, your sister calls you from jail and <laughs> needs you to get her out, you know? what? Or was it that you really started with Davis and worked the story from, from there?
1: Um, it really kind of started with Davis. Um, she had a name and a personality um, about 20 years ago, and it's taken me this long to kind of build a story um, and a background around her that was somewhat believable, for the personality that she originally had in my head. So, um, yeah, it's been about 20 years of working on her. Um, and the sister thing, um, she, she had two sisters, um, uh, for a, for a while. Uh, probably she's had two sisters for a good decade or so. Um, if not longer. And, uh. I don't know. Probably just, I've read too much crime fiction and, uh, you know, that phone call from family to pull you back into some kind of thing is a fairly common trope, especially with, um, amateur sleuths.
0: She gets an interesting, you know, career option there too, where she gets to investigate and work for a lawyer and stuff. And, um, so at least you broke the, you know, you didn't, weren't, she wasn't a reporter. She wasn't, but this is, this is definitely a dark and gritty story. It's not, it's not a, a cozy amateur sleuth story.
1: So. Oh, no, no, no. Definitely not cozy.
0: Not cozy at all. Very graphic. And what is it that, that draws you to that element to make you want to, you know, build an entire world and build these characters in, in that dark and gritty style?
1: I guess I have like a natural cynicism or something that just, um, I, when I was in like middle school and high school, I, I went through a phase where I read a lot of terrible romance novels and, um, I think a lot of, a lot of kids do, um, especially girl kids go through the phase of reading just terrible romance novels. Yeah. Um, and they they were something to read and i've always been a big reader, but i they didn't really speak to me in any way and um I found a Sarah Peretsky book on the um like trade paperback uh shelf at the library I worked in, and uh that did speak to me and so then I started seeking out all of these other like crime fiction mystery thriller kind of books and um what I really liked about that one was the strong, like, resourceful, smart female lead character who um, had um, her own flaws, but who, like, kind of pushed through, persevered, and um, and so many of the other books that I found in that genre were very, like, John McClaney. They were very, uh, you know, tough guy doing tough tough things and drinking whiskey while shooting weapons. Um, And uh, so I I, like found as many um, books like the Sarah Paretsky book um, as I could and like read them. And um, I guess it was around, it was sort of around that time that like the idea that I really wished there was one who was a little bit younger because uh, so many of the female characters that I read were um, already kind of older and, like, established, and they had had careers and some kind of... They, on some level, had figured their shit out, so to speak. And um, I couldn't find one who was younger and had not figured any of her shit out, uh, which is not to say they don't have, like, their own issues and stuff, but just that, you know, she had not, like, the yeah. A character who was like the male equivalent, I guess, of kind of not quite there competently and, and everything.
0: Right. Well now that's that's a thing. And like, it's you know, become a thing. And new adult is now a you know, a brand new category after after young adult, there's new adult. And so there's you know, I I think there's probably people realize there was a void. <laughs> Um, it's, it's t- it something besides vampires.
1: <laughs> well, clearly it took me a while to get there. So, um, they, they had time to invent a whole new genre while I was figuring out my own shit, I guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, how long did you actually write this? Cause I, I know it, if it was sort of like, you know, an idea and a 20 year process, but when you decided to sit down, I don't know, outline or draft or however your process was, how long was the, was that?
1: Well, I mean, when I say 20 years, I don't mean, like, consecutively, but... Oh, um, no, no. I mean, I there was a draft, of a terrible, horrible, no-good draft of this um, story back in, like, 96, 97. Um, it was, it had only the barest bones of what it eventually ended up being. Um, at Tom uh, her, her friend, uh, and like the private investigator character, Tom McQuaid, he had, um, he existed, um, and Davis and her sisters existed, and, uh, that was about it. Um, they, they didn't have quite the same characteristics that they eventually ended up in. Uh, Back then, uh, Davis still had a dog and a cat. She was a little more lighthearted. Um, and uh, I put that pile of drafty garbage on the shelf, um, so to speak. I think it's actually on a floppy disk. Uh, <laughs> uh, so luckily, uh, I, don't, I don't think anyone has the remaining technology to access that stupid thing without, like, contemplating the Smithsonian. So no one can get to that terribleness. But um, I recently threw out my floppy disk. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't even know where the floppy disk is, but I'm sure it's somewhere in this house because there's still a Commodore 64 in this house. So Oh, boy. <laughs> um, Yeah, that kind of ended up sitting on a shelf while I finished my bachelor's degree, and I went on and um, worked in advertising for a while, and I got a master's degree, and I worked in education for a while, and while I was working in education, um, and primarily at the detention center, uh... I guess is when Davis started really speaking to me again. And uh, I dug out her old stuff and started kind of re- reworking it. And then I was like, this is never going to be reworkable and just kind of started over. But yeah, I have a master's in criminology. So clearly I am attracted to the dark side, even though I don't do anything with
0: it. Oh, well, there you go. I was th- For some reason, I thought it was education, but okay, criminology makes more sense.
1: Well, I a lot of my research in, in working on my master's was with juvenile justice, um, zero tolerance policies, the school to prison pipeline. Um, so all like right in line with where I was working at the time and what I was doing. And I'm sure that that all heavily influenced Davis's background and a lot of the choices that she makes and a lot of the choices that I made about her like the fact that they move around a lot um, is almost necessary to keep them out of the system because um, that's how a lot of the students that I had would stay caught up is that they would always end up right back in the same neighborhood or right back home or go back to the same boyfriend or they'd go back to the same school and once people see you as a problem, then they're going to look for problems and it becomes like a, a perpetual motion machine of, you know, anything you do that may have once been kind of brushed off as a bad day turns into like a warning sign that you're going to do something wrong. So, As opposed to like the
0: real mass shooters who are out there and people never speak up and it's like, it's like oh, they were just so quiet, kept to themselves. Exactly. Well, when you decided that you had a story here, um, did you stick to a firm writing schedule?
1: No, um, no, 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 no. This this um, is a a poster child of a how not to do anything. This whole. (laughs) Start off with a character and uh, write a thing and put it in a, on a shelf and uh, ignore it for a decade and then try to start over again and don't outline and fly by the seat of your pants and um, follow the trade winds. And yeah, no, this is definitely not a how-to in any way, shape, or form. Um, I, I, have, I have been trying with um, new writing projects to follow a writing schedule and um, – to have something of an outline and to uh, do some research and have some kind of a game plan. But, uh, no, this, this, this first Davis book is definitely not a how-to guide at all. So was the editing much harder for that? Um, the editing felt impossible. Um, and I pity all of the people who have read drafts of it along the way. Um, including you, although I think you less than some of the earlier people who read, like, uh, drafts for a few years before. Um, because uh, before Elizabeth White um, got a hold of it and, and fixed a lot of things, it was not great. Um, and she's a great editor, so if anyone is looking to hire, um, yeah, give her money and, and get her to fix your stuff. Holly West and uh, Thomas Pluck also helped point out a lot of the flaws and uh, issues uh, with earlier drafts. Um, Oddly enough, uh, Joelle Charbonneau read an early, early draft of it, and I kind of feel bad for her because uh, looking (laughs) back on the garbage that she read, I'm really glad she's a fast reader because I would not have wanted her to waste so much of her time on it. And then, yeah, you, you read, um, you actually read a fairly clean version of it, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and.
0: Because I remember it had already been through, um, a couple of people by the time I got a look at it.
1: And, and then I don't also, I don't recommend, um, torturing all of these, these, uh, people with your, your, uh, terrible drafts. That's another, you know, how not to, um, um.
0: But it's great that you had those people. Oh, no. Without- it's, it's really hard to find, you know, people.
1: I mean, because it takes a lot of time to go through, you know, a few hundred pages. And it lets you read at Joelle's speed. Um, I think she may have, like, just flipped through it while standing in line at the grocery store and she was done. I have I, I, I am in awe of that kind of reading speed um, because. I I was a proofreader for um, a number of years in advertising, and I am a notoriously slow reader because I I think my brain is still looking for extra spaces between words, and yet I still can't find spelling errors in my own stuff. So,
0: yeah, I don't think anybody can. Oh, my typos are terrible, and plus, I'm just I, I don't have a good typing skill set, so it's uh, it's automatically going to be bad
1: that is something that improved between the earlier drafts and the later drafts is that I got better at typing. So there's that. There's, there's the takeaway, become a better typist there. Become a better type. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, well, they come out of the womb with a keyboard now.
0: They do. So they're faster with their thumbs than I am, uh, you know, with a keyboard. What I'm actually getting slower, I think, with age.
1: And I never I, I never um, had like a formal typing class. It was just a matter of the more I needed to type stuff, then the faster I got at it. I had to drop out because I was failing. See, they always offer typing class at the same time as like all the level 1 AP kind of things that I was in. So I never really, it was never an option. Or so I probably would have flunked out of typing, too. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I mean, at least I know like the basics, like I, you know, I can use the home row and, um, but I still have to look and I'm, and my fingers are very short. So reaching for the numbers was always a big problem.
1: I never got those right. I'm the kind of old where they still had typewriters in our typing class. Yeah,
0: that's what we had. We had typewriters. Yeah. And I got, uh, the reason that I was failing was because I crossed my legs under my desk. So I would get points off every day
1: for crossing my legs. I would end up sitting cross-legged at the desk, so I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean that's and that's what I do too. I'm I'm always cross-legged. I'm, you know, it's I could be sitting on a bar stool and I'll you know cross my legs like that and sit on my feet. It's terrible, but you know. No wonder I have back problems.
1: I don't know sitting, you know, what what they call it the dojo crisscross applesauce always uh, Yeah, always makes my back seem a little straighter.
0: I feel I've, I don't know. Yeah, my my legs are just they just do that, you know, but I guess it's a flexibility thing. I, I'm, I have no flexibility in other areas, but that I can do. So when you're when, but speaking of the dojo, is that one of your regular ways to unwind and take breaks and or, you know, how do you get out of this gloom of drugs and
1: violence and, <laughs> and
0: stuff when you're writing crime fiction?
1: Well, I mean, when I worked at it, when I worked at the schools, the schools, um, in particular, the detention center. Actually, Davis was a pretty good escape from that because at least her problems I could, I could fix if I wanted to, or you know, I could delete them, or I could just close the laptop and they'd go away. Whereas this stuff at, at work just didn't. But um, as for the dojo, now you know what? Um, it started off because I had been running. Um, as like a a release, as an exercise, you know, like a way to stay in shape kind of a thing um, over at the beach, and I kept getting more and more kind of like creepy, harassy kind of behavior, Um, and um, it was starting to get darker, and, and with winter coming, and so by the time I would get over to the beach, it was already starting to get dusk, and it wasn't very terribly populated in that particular area, and so it started to feel less and less safe. And um, I needed an activity. I wanted to be able to write better fight scenes. And I had, when I was a child, wanted to take karate classes, but um, I got talked out of it because my sister was in dance. And so I got put in dance. And I can't dance, so that didn't last <laughs> very long. Um, but uh, <laughs> my sister's the dancer. Um, but uh, so I, I started looking into local dojos and, and gyms and stuff. And a lot of them were very kind of, you know, MMA had become like a popular thing. And so a lot of them were very MMA focused and very testosterone drenched, sort of a manly men beating other manly men kind of a thing. Or they were hugely traditional In a way that almost felt, um, it, it was, it was nice to honor tradition, but it didn't seem terribly practical. Um, and maybe that's just an outsider perspective. Maybe it's hugely practical. I, now that I have spent way more time in the style that I have, I mean, I can definitely see how some of the traditional stuff is very, very practical once you are good at it. Um, but... Uh, I was, I'm, I'm old. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe I do need that level of discipline, but, um, it, I didn't feel like that was initially what I was looking for so much as, um, uh, more of like a, a self-defense kind of a thing instead of, you know, enrolling like your kid with ADHD so that they learn to sit still. <laughs> um, so I found a school that was kind of the best of both worlds. It um, it had like a good kind of self-defense aspect to it. Um, and it had the traditional um, forms and weapons and um, a lot of the, the traditional elements uh, lining up by rank and that kind of a thing. But it also had uh, more of a modern twist to it where um, it, it incorporated elements from other styles that seemed um, that seemed to work or it was more adaptive. Um, there were the part, there's still the parts where, you know, this is the way we do this because this is the way it's always done. But there's also parts that, hey, we picked this up from this, you know, seminar we did with this other group of, of people. and This seems more effective than the way that we have been teaching it. So we're going to, you know, make this change. It's more of a, a living style I guess and I like that aspect
0: well it's interesting that one of the things that you said was that it taught you how to write better fight scenes um, because I'm absolutely terrible at that Um, and it's one of those it's really challenging when you're trying to write a comic script because you need to give direction to the artist and uh, usually what I'll do is um, they fight here figure out how many panels you (laughs) want (laughs) to do and so with like I, I said at the beginning, there's a, there, you know, there are different, uh, different types of violence in all the bridges burning. So, from, from the perspective of Davis as she's going through these, you know, these scenes where she's having flashbacks to a particular incident and then she's also, you, you know, having to fight for her life, um, it was on a boat, I think, um, what type of way, did you approach those writing scenes so that you felt like it was it was honest to Davis and that it wasn't using her as just, um, you know, like a punching bag and a prop for, you know, for the sake of the men that were beating on her or something like that? How did you how did you put all of this knowledge together so that Davis came out um, still having some agency?
1: Well, Part of Davis' uh, backstory is that she has this uncle who's not really her uncle, but, um, like a family friend, so to speak, who, um, they've spent several, um, summers or parts of summers at his place, and he's a former Marine, and he kind of took it upon himself to teach her a lot of self-defense, um, and in some ways kind of toughen her up, um. Which Nick sees as a form of child abuse. Nick is not down with any of it, but Davis is very much. Look, this is why you know we're all still alive is because I knew how to do certain things, and because I knew that if I got hurt, then I could keep going. Kind of a, an attitude, and so I, in a lot of ways, that, um, that kind of backstory is necessary for Davis to explain why she's willing to like keep going when things happen to her um or that belief that she can um uh, because if you get hit <laughs> even when you're sparring and you're wearing padding it's 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 a stunning kind of a thing and it takes you a second to figure out what the hell just happened and over like come out of it um especially the first time so um and then if you get hurt while you're sparring, then it's very difficult to um, convince yourself that this is an, a, an activity you should keep doing. So, um, yeah, her background of, of having learned how to fight and learn some self-defense and learned a lot of things like that from her uncle were necessary. Um, and the fact that she doesn't really back down from a fight either. She's very much... Um, a, balls to the wall kind of a a person in a lot of ways where she is um, a little too confrontational in a lot of
0: ways. Right. And I mean, she's, she's not only defending herself, but you know, there are times when she's, you know, she's trying to help someone else. And that puts a whole different, I think, um, you know, perspective and motivation to her, like why she would get into a physical fight with somebody.
1: And that's and like, that's a lot of it, too, know. is that she isn't necessarily always up for standing up for herself, but she definitely is, is willing to stand up for other people that she cares about.
0: So is there going to be more Davis to come? Because, I, you know, it's one of those things where, the, you know, the book is certainly complete on its own, but you always have to wonder if there's how many more stories you want to tell with these same people.
1: Um, there are. I've been working on a sequel. And, um, there's another book beyond that that I had sketched out, like a very rough outline of. And that one feels much more, um, interesting and alive, but it doesn't. There's no bridge between there and where she was. Um, and the thing that I've been working on, it's. I've been having a hell of a time with it. I need more character perspective than just Davis, and so finding other characters to like add chapters from their point of view um to round out the story has been hard <laughs> cuz her voice is so clear in my head and some of the other characters I've been having trouble like finding theirs. Um So I started on a side project that has nothing to do with Davis and has nothing to do with crime fiction, really. And it has nothing really to do with anything. I just gave myself permission to do it. Um, And finding my way in and out of those characters' heads has been helping a lot, actually, with the sequel. The election, however, has not been helping at all because... um, you know based on davis's background um it's pretty easy to see how she might have some strong opinions about some particular elements of the uh president elect's past and uh she has a tendency to get a little like angry when um <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah so if you're writing her your present day
1: um, uh... which i haven't been she the there's a little known um uh thing that uh, actually All the Bridges Burning takes place in 2006. It just doesn't say it anywhere in the book, um, because um, putting a year into it felt um, like dating it. Mm -hmm. But um, in my head, and um, the dates that are given line up with 2006. And I kind of arrested it there, because if I kept progressing it forward, then a lot of their past didn't make any sense. Um it got too far into an era where everyone would have cell phones and everyone would be videotaping everything, and a lot of the things that they did and ran from and eluded um would no longer have been possible, um which is something that my students had often run into where um they they were too trackable <laughs> um and uh so the sequel still isn't in present day. <laughs> But, um, yeah, in my head, she's still just too damn angry. (laughs) Yeah, that's – you know, it's one of those things because um,
0: my – the year-end episode, Josh Neff and I talked for a good two hours, and we did talk a little bit about politics and how we got so depressed and riddled with anxiety issues in November that our creativity was just like, you know – out the crapper, like it was just, you know, it was hard to rebound. And the, you know, the advice is always, there's always, you know, you got to listen to the professionals who have been doing this more successfully and longer. And give yourself permission to take that break and have that meltdown, but you have to come back to your work. Or even if it's not that work, unless you have a contract, start something else. But you know, if you're life is to create this kind of art and stories and stuff, then you have to get back to it because walking away means that you've, you've given up. So I I would love to see, I don't know. That'd be interesting to see Davis in a Trump world. (laughs) I could see her running, you know, could you imagine if she had to run into him, like doing something at one of those pageants where he was?
1: Um, I, I don't, I don't know that that would have worked out well for either one of them. Because, <laughs> <laughs> um, again, she thinks with her fist first. Um, no, um, and that's another reason why I, I started this other side kind of thing that has nothing to do with anything. It was just like a little like, nugget of an idea in my head, and it was the kind of thing that normally I would push to the side and be like, eh, I need to finish this other thing first. But um, because – I felt so stymied with the other thing and so like, creatively blocked and drained. I was like, you know what, Just this this other thing is is so not any of the normal stuff that you read or, or write on, on a regular basis that just go and play with that and basically it's like Play-Doh and uh, go and play with your Play-Doh and when you're you know done with your Play-Doh then come back to the play you know, real stuff. So uh that's actually it's been helping a lot. Um and uh and it's over ten thousand words at this point. That's and that I've been shipping away at like just in little little bits and pieces. Actually no it's uh, about fifteen hundred words. So um and I've I've got Davis to realize that she is not in twenty sixteen. She's uh you know no, really. You've got your own shit to go do that. I can't <laughs> solve anything over here in 2016, so you deal with your shit. So, um, but it took it took a couple of weeks to actually convince her that um, no, really, I can't do anything about this. Uh, I'm not you. So, <laughs> well, I mean, it's
0: you know, it's interesting because it's not like 2006 is forever ago you know it might feel that way to some people but it's you know it's not forever ago as opposed to um uh let's see what what the hell is the name oh i I watched um over the summer one of the few movies that i did see was called the nice guys and that was set in the 70s um and then of course josh stalling's novel young americans was set, set during that time too and um you know, like you said, how how different everyday life was, obviously, you get, you know, you can't get caught up in stuff like, oh, well, the fashions did this and everything. But it's like, you know, hey, there's a telephone and you have to, you know, go use the telephone on the wall with the big long cord. If you were lucky enough, the cord was long enough that you could sit on the floor. <laughs> um, you know, and as you said, it's, it's such a surveilled world that we live in now. But that was one of the things that I asked in, in a mystery writers workshop was uh, there's got to be some way around writing a modern story other than, oh, my cell phone died. You know, it's sort of the equivalent of, um you know, adding a child to the story because you're running out of steam. You know, it's like the jumping the shark. <laughs> well,
1: I mean, in, tw- in 2006, our cell phones did die all the
0: time. Yeah, um, no, that's what I mean. Like for a modern story, it's it, you it, know there has you have to be really come up with crazier shit.
1: Like and, um, you know? in fact uh, at BoucherCon, um, when it was in Cleveland a few years back, um, I, I remember Sabrina Ogden and I were constantly trying to charge our phones. Um, we would we there was something about the building that that particular BoucherCon was in that just sucked the life out of my my battery. Faster than anywhere else I had ever gone with that stupid phone. Um, I could sit, I could have like 99% and I could sit through a, um, a panel and when I would go to leave, it would be down to like 15 and blinking and flashing and telling me, please plug me in, dear God, please. Um, we, we were like constantly sitting on floors in front of outlets and um, using those like little charger stick things, trying to get the some juice Sweet.
0: <laughs> well now at um yeah some of the conventions they have uh sponsored charging stations you know like um some insurance company or whatever will let you come over and and charge their stuff um, which is great, whatever they might want to just hand you their literature or get you to sign up for their mailing list or something, but it's like whatever, just let me charge
1: well, and now I have a phone that stays charged pretty much the whole day so. Um, I guess when Davis catches up to, to twenty sixteen, um, I'm gonna have to figure out what to do with with her. You know, having a phone that works all the damn time.
0: It's funny because <laughs> yeah, they're you know, like I I was talking about leverage. I talk about leverage all the time, but you know, like if you have a hacker character, if they have a cell phone, they can break into the freaking Pentagon. You know, like they it's it, there are you can go to that extreme too where it's like i have a cell phone so i'm going to break into this ferrari
1: (laughs) well and a lot of that is is you know a lot of that is feels a little bullshitty but at the same time um when the husband worked for um for a different city that he works for now. I mean, he had all. He wasn't like hacking because he worked for them. He had all the passwords and everything. Um, he had set up the server, so it wasn't like he was secretly getting into it. But he's updating, you know, databases and stuff from an, his phone on an island in the, you know, house sticking out of the Atlantic one holiday. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> like for, for, you know for someone who at the time my my phone still um you know was giving me like the little thinking circle trying to uh, you know refresh my refresh my email <laughs> I'm like watching him from across the room like for reals I go back to my paper book cuz clearly I live in a different age than you <laughs> but. Um, but I guess um uh, we we could still like have their phones break <laughs>
0: Yeah, they can dr- drop in toilets. Although now there's like new phones that can, you know, go scuba diving with you, whatever. I,
1: I, but, I have I have actually like taken video in a lake with mine, so. <laughs>
0: yeah, see, I have I have a couple friends that are still on flip phones, which um, the flip phone design to me is one of the perfect ones. You know, you didn't butt dial and have those kind of mistakes, but um, I'm still several generations behind here with my Samsung because I'm not going to upgrade while their phones are exploding. You know,
1: see, there you go. You can have your phone explode. (laughs) You can have your phone explode. And you don't even need like, you know, hackers and terrorists and bad guys. Your phone just just just, explodes on its own. It's just in your pocket and suddenly your legs on fire.
0: So yeah, there's you know working working with the technology and the era that you're writing in can uh, can definitely be interesting. I didn't do much with my stories other than really talking about the damage of social media. Like that that worked its way into my stories a lot.
1: Your characters are very social creatures, so I can see how um how social media could be very damaging to them.
0: Yeah yeah you know especially
1: if you're accused of murder
0: all of a sudden, like well, there goes my client base yes
1: <laughs> having having like a normal like life and job kind of a setup really lends itself well to that kind of terrorizing is
0: yeah, and it was interesting because um my friend is who manages a comic shop, happens to be reading full body manslaughter, and when i I have more parts of that in there about you know, people going crazy on, on Twitter and stuff or whatever. I like some of them I gave fake names to. And um, they just, you know, they went through this problem with their shop where they got hammered with all these basically fake one star reviews. It was just, you know, one guy got mad. So he had all his friends leave one star and they were just being petulant that way. And so it was like this real world thing that happened and is, is so relatable to, to people, and it's just, you know, your average everyday people trying to run their business. And it's like, oh, it's so
1: frustrating. And for someone like Sarah who really needs to um, have a client base that trusts her and would rely on reviews if they haven't been there before. that's that could be- Exactly. You're not going to go to a massage therapist
0: who possibly killed her patient. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Maybe if you're Davis. Yeah. She's tried everything else.
0: It's like, I'm going to go to a tattoo artist who's known for hepatitis. Yeah, like, no, it's just. <laughs> but speaking of murder and dying and stuff, what the hell is, you know, 2016 was filled with a lot of death and um, we lost some beloved artists, you know, people in, in acting and music and um, even the science world. So uh, one of the, the great things, though, is, that, you know, when we lost Carrie Fisher, people really started reminiscing about her hilarious sense of humor. And that she wanted her obituary because uh, there was this, you know, stupid interview uh, where, you know, where, well, not that the interview was stupid, but where this story where George Lucas was saying that she wouldn't have worn a bra in space. So uh, she wanted her obituary to read that she was drowned in moonlight, strangled by her own bra. So. I remember we had to do an exercise in journalism classes. We had to write obituaries and write our own obituary and what did we want them to say? And of course it's like I you know it's sort of it's supposed to be inspirational to say oh well you know by the time I die I want to have accomplished these things. But I kind of like the more poetic version the drowned in moonlight strangled by her bra. I think that's um a way more fun type of obit to write, and um, you know, I don't know. Did you ever have to do that? Do you want? Do you know what your obituary should say? I never had to do that. I um,
1: I didn't take any journalism classes, so um, and and none of the I I have my bachelor's degree is in business, and uh, business doesn't really care whether you're living or dead as long as your profit margin margins are okay.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know,
1: you could be Tupac and make more money once you have. Um business is very not really concerned with people at all, um, unless they're churning out money. So, uh no, I never had to do that. Um I don't know. I on the one hand I don't really um I, I can't imagine anyone caring enough to like read my obituary. <laughs> um, but uh or that there need would even need to be one. Um the
0: I mean, you're just going to disappear one day and you don't think anybody will notice. I I, I think the
1: husband would notice, but I mean, I don't don't know if he really, you know, I don't don't know if anyone else would. Um, The cats might. The cats would notice. Um,
0: I I think a lot of people would notice, but um, yeah, I don't know how, how well your cats are at Twitter if they could let us know. I mean, they're all over Instagram.
1: They're, um, they are terrible typers. Those uh, cats. They keep trying to work on my novel for me when I get up to fill up my water glass and uh, I come <laughs> back to just a bunch of J's and spaces and some they call it. Um, I mean, on the one hand, I guess it could probably just say uh, that her to-do list is still undone because um, I was actually just a couple of days ago, I was, just whining or to um, to Holly West about how um, I I feel like this like time is rapidly running away from all of us and, and like I am not accomplishing all of the things that I want to accomplish and I just um, I don't know like I seem to end up with more things I want to accomplish and I like does it even matter and like this whole existential crisis. Um, because I, I guess it got dark and I didn't know what I was supposed to be wearing to dinner. I don't know. I you, brains are weird, yeah. weird creatures that um, I sometimes think live apart from us just to torment the rest of us. Um, but uh, I don't know. Like the funnier version would probably just be she probably still has to pee because pretty <laughs> much the story of my life is that I almost always have to pee. Yeah. As soon
0: as as soon as you get to the afterlife, you'll be looking for the restroom. <laughs>
1: I drink entirely too much water. Um, my husband got me a Fitbit for Christmas, uh, like a refurbished or, or used Fitbit from a friend who bought it and decided it wasn't one he wanted. Um, and uh, it, it wants it wants me to put in how much water I drink. And um, apparently, I drink around 200 ounces of water a day. Holy cow! So I guess this is why I always have to pee. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, when you're not peeing and drinking water, do you, um, I know that you spend a ton of time outside, um, but when you're, you know, when you have your inside stuff, are you, do you have like a list of reading to get through and
1: TV to watch? Um, I honestly don't watch that much TV. The husband has been a bit obsessed lately with uh, Food Network, and uh, mostly what I just have noticed about that is that it's all meat all the time. I really want Food Network to have, exactly. like, a, at least one vegan show where they're, you know, the basket ingredients are tofu. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, not, like, it's lamb and emu egg. Um, but uh, I – we are still working our way through the X-Files, like, the from the 90s X-Files.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we did watch Stranger Things, and uh, – I, we're terrible at keeping up with like modern shows uh, in general. But how's,
0: how's your reading
1: pile? My it, uh, my reading pile is out of control.
0: Um, okay. I have I, you know I think that's most people. I think you, we end up always buying more books than we can read.
1: I have a giant pile of stuff um, from Bouchercon that I, I like a whole suitcase worth of stuff that I brought back from Bouchercon that I need to get through. Um. Ben Leroy insisted that I needed to read Deer Hunting with Jesus, so I've been working my way through that. <laughs> okay. Um, but um, I, I, I read like a, a few pages and then I argue in the margins with the author, and um, so I, I, since Ben I think has left social media again, I, I think I'm gonna have to like, I don't know, send him a big long email or like an actual letter on paper to like discuss this book that he wanted me to read <laughs> uh, when I'm finally done with it because um, I have so many thoughts and there's a lot of jumbled thoughts about this particular book um, at the same time I I was reading Brené Brown's um, I thought it was just me but it isn't which I have to say there's a lot of parallels between the deer hunting book and that book I, Like almost like they're having the same argument but opposite sides of the room or something um, because she talks a lot about a culture of, of shame and and blame and vulnerability, and how when we feel shamed, we um, we sometimes get angry or we shut down or and, and she's describing all of this behavior that people have um, been doing on a mass scale over the course of the last year or so, um, but also. The stuff that deer hunting dude, and I don't remember his name, <laughs> it sounds awful, but the book is in another room, so I can't, like, leave and go look it up. Um, but uh, it, he's describing it from, like, 10 years ago, and it's, like, I just want to get, like, the people from the deer hunting book to read the other book and like get them in a room with all of the people that Brown interviewed for her book and just be like, look, all you people talk to each other so that you solve this. And I don't have to feel like I have to, because I can't. Um, but uh, I also, I bought a book called still writing. By, I want to say Danny Shapiro. And if I screw that up, sorry. Um, <laughs> that's okay. That uh, is, that's good. And, um, but it's, it's like a, one of those, writing memoir kind of things that I've been working my way through slowly because um, there it feels like there's not quite enough of those to, uh, like, like Stephen King's On Writing and Bird by Bird um, that, you know, you can, like, read a little bit of it here and there and, like, kind of, like, give yourself a little pep talk and get back to your job. Um,
0: yeah, Chuck Wendig has a few
1: of those. And his
0: are really fast because his are – or sort of like bullet points, like tips on writing, you know, and it's just like a, you know, big, long bullet list.
1: So there's, there's that. And I keep borrowing books from the library as though, you know, I'm not tripping over them everywhere I wander in the house. I, 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 if I, if I'm not reading like six books at one time, I guess I feel like I need to go get some more.
0: (laughs) Well, there you go it's yeah I I try to do that less because at one point I think I was go you know, I was doing three books at a time and I'm like okay I'm not finishing these so this is a problem so now I just try to focus and it's like okay I'm just gonna get through this one and if I don't like it then I have to give myself permission to stop reading it there's one book and I love the author but her this particular book that I was reading her sentence structure is just terrible and it's you know one of those agented, published by a reputable house kind of books. I'm like, I don't know what happened here. It just feels like I'm reading her first draft. So I just stopped reading it.
1: I almost kind of feel like sometimes if people develop like a certain level of notoriety that they spend less time on the editing because they know that people will buy it no matter what. Probably, I really felt that way about the fourth Harry Potter book. I, I yeah, oh, absolutely. J.K. Rowling rambles. I um, yeah. like the first three felt like pretty tight stories, and then the fourth one with that tournament, I was like, you know what? I um, I, I like love all the aspects that aren't part of the tournament, but like that thing just dragged on and on and. Thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's how I felt about uh, that later half. The whole half of that series was like, you know, these books were getting outrageous like several hundred pages too long.
1: Well, luckily, we're never going to have that problem, right?
0: No, no, no. I'm comfortable with the, the page length of my book, and I would like some of the success. Maybe it doesn't have to be uh, Harry Potter's success, but I wouldn't mind it. I wouldn't say no to it. That could be my obit. I wouldn't say no to Harry Potter's success.
1: <laughs> That's not a bad
0: one. Yeah, go buy my books now. On my tombstone and have like the, you know, like one of those, um, what the hell are those stupid things called? Those um, weird black and white Q codes that you, QR codes, that's it, on my headstone. Like, <laughs> There you go. Takes you, right, takes you right to my author page. Here, buy my books.
1: <laughs> well, what you need is like a, a Pharaoh Leathers like costume. That you know, you yeah. can like sell at a at a comic book I, shop or like a, a bookstores and and people can be fair for Halloween. That's, That'd be great. That's the, that's I think that's the part of the key there is that you've got to have like some some. She needs a thing. Yeah, you you need like uh, that that commercial aspect that becomes marketing for you that people are like buying your like advertising
0: and walking around as well, your billboard. Yes. Yeah. yeah. See, like the um. Like the barmaids in True Blood, they sell those t-shirts, the um, Merlots t-shirts. So, um, yeah. So maybe if I had, like, fake Riverside wellness spa scrubs or something. (laughs) There you go. There. I'll market that. It'll be on Cafe Press by tomorrow.
1: Now you've got your job for the afternoon.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So um, now that we've rambled for a while, and we did spend a considerable amount of time talking about the cats as we promised, um, what uh, what links do you want people to check out for you?
1: Um. Well, uh, I there's a lot of cats on Instagram. Um. So if you're into cats, there's cats on Instagram. Um. And uh, that's just Nelisager. Um. You know, instagramcom slash Drew. Um, there's a, uh, a link on Instagram, if you're tired of looking at cats, that will take you right to the All the Bridges Burning page on my website. Um, and then that's just noisadrew.com. Uh, I have been trying to spend less time on Twitter these days just because Twitter has become such a, um, it's a rabbit hole and it gets me all like angry about life and Davis is angry enough already in my head. I don't... <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, so, I mean, so, like, you know, the, the clean blog entries are at com, And I, I vote for the Instagram because um you also take pretty pictures of your pen collection, your, like, very artistic pens.
1: I do like a good pen.
0: Yeah. So, and your photos are great, and I'm convinced that you use something besides just a phone. No,
1: I, I swear, I just use my phone. Um, But I mean, in all fairness, I did. um, I I did study photography for a couple of semesters um, in between being an international business major and a business administration major. Um, I was an art major for like a couple of semesters. So. Well,
0: there you go. So, yeah, my I I upgraded um, just the card in my phone. I haven't upgraded the phone itself. So now I can fit even more pictures of the cats on my phone just to, you know, warn people because I have to take about 20 pictures before I get one that's decent. And, you know, and especially if I'm trying to get both cats at the same time, forget it. Always one of them is moving. It's like, well, whatever. Gus looks good in this one. Ollie's blurry. What are you going to do? Um, but uh, yeah, my pictures are far less, artistic on Instagram. Um,
1: well, I mean, it, they're all... The older ones are all uh, the Galaxy S4, and uh, the the later ones are the S7 Edge.
0: So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm still on the four. <laughs>
1: but I, I actually sold a couple of prints from photos that I took with my S4. So Nice. Um, back when I was doing the, the craft shows nice
0: nice so there we have it go by all the bridges burning and um both of us have stories in protectors volume two so you which, should go get that which is a good cause
1: so it's a good cause yeah. it's
0: a charity book so you don't even have um, to read
1: our stories just go buy the book and give some. Oh, yeah go charity. buy the book
0: um, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I've sort of come back a bit to Twitter. It's Elizabeth Amber because I also took a big long break. And um, everything else for me is at amberunmasked.com. But please go to patreon.com/amberunmasked to support the show and keep me going. It's very helpful. So check out Neliza Drew's All the Bridges Burning.